Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 to chapter 6, verse 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one that you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, and he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the fool stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for the toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he.
The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? All right, so Cicero told the story of an unhappy king. All right, the king's name was Dionysius, and uh, as a king, uh, he had a lot of enemies, and this made Dionysius uh, always uh, fearful of someone assassinating him. And so, uh, though he was the king, he always lived uh, in fear. Uh, he built a moat around his bedroom complex so that everyone would stay away. Uh, he only allowed his daughters to shave his beard, which is kind of weird, but the idea was that he didn't trust anybody to not slit his neck when shaving him. And so he was the king, but he lived in great, in great fear. And then one day a peasant by the name of Damocles uh, is somehow in the king's presence, and, and Damocles starts talking about how nice it would be to be the king. I mean, wouldn't it be great if there were people always serving you and giving you grapes and, you know, cooking your meat and, you know, just taking care of you all the time? And Dionysius kind of chuckles to himself, and he says, well, I've got an idea, Damocles, come here. And he sits him in his royal throne, and he tells his servants to, you know, look out for him and to feed him, and Damocles, for a while, thinks this is great. And then pretty soon, King Dionysius decides that he's going to hang a sword from the ceiling right over the throne. And that sword is going to hang by a thread so that Damocles understands that being king really isn't that great at all. It's not all it's really cut out to be. Yeah, you may have all the grapes you could ever want, but you never know when someone is going to take your life. So, the king taught Damocles to be careful what he wished for. Now, the sword of Damocles teaches that success is not all it's cracked up to be. As Shakespeare put it, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. Sometimes what you want most proves most burdensome and dangerous than you had imagined. Now, when you hear the word suffering, right, inevitably, if you're anything like me, you tend to think about the pain associated with lacking something. I'm suffering because I don't have something. I don't have wealth. I don't have honor. I don't have health. So you suffer because you didn't get the promotion, or you suffer because you don't have enough money. But there is another kind of suffering that the Bible addresses. It's the suffering that comes from having too much. The suffering of Damocles, the suffering that comes when you learn that the grass is not always greener on the other side. Now, many of you think that you want more wealth. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says you might just be surprised. Many of you think you would like a little bit more honor the preacher of Ecclesiastes says you might just be surprised. Wealth brings as many problems as it does pleasures. Our passage, which you just heard, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 6, 12, an extraordinary text about the source, about wealth as a source of suffering and a reason for joy. It's a long text. I won't be able to cover every verse. Uh, I can say what I've never said before, that if you endure the entire sermon, there will be a cupcake awaiting you at the very end. <laughs> and I am sure there are all sorts of biblical lessons associated with that cupcake. All right? So, um, there you have it. I really do, I really do pray uh, in 20, 21st century America, uh, in, in, in our church, uh, on our birthday, that this text would really recalibrate our view of, of success. Uh, we live in a world that uh, wouldn't know biblical success if it was looking at it right in the eye. And this is an unusual text, well-suited to recalibrating uh, what we really need to be mindful of and, and value. So first, we're gonna look at the curse of wealth, and second, we're gonna look at the blessing of wealth, and when we're done, I hope you see that, that, that wealth can only be truly enjoyed, wealth can only be truly enjoyed when Christ is singularly prized.
singularly prized. You can't prize anything else with Christ and still enjoy whatever wealth God may have given you. All right, first, the curse of wealth. Ecclesiastes uh, is notoriously difficult to outline. It's difficult to know how it breaks up. At times, uh, it seems to read a little bit like Proverbs, a series of, of unrelated or disconnected verses. But there is much that is uniting these chapters in Ecclesiastes and these paragraphs. And we have a clue about our passage uh, really in, uh, in the verse that precedes it. We have a clue about this man whose eyes are never satisfied with riches. Now, that's the verse preceding ours, Ecclesiastes 4.8. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. Right? That's right at the beginning, if you will, of our passage. When you get to the end of our passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7, we read that all the toil of man, all the toil, all of his work is for the mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. His appetite is not satisfied. So at the very beginning of our passage, you've, you've got this, this man who, who, who's never satisfied with riches. And then at the very end of our passage, you have this idea of an appetite that's never satisfied. And so our whole passage that James just read seems to be framed by this one idea, right? That it's common to want more. It's common to want more, but to never feel like you have enough. And if there's anything we can all relate to, I think it's that, that feeling, that temptation, that tendency. And that, that feeling, that temptation, that tendency, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, it really is a problem. And in fact, although we don't tend to use suffering this way, it really is a source of suffering. It has a way of undoing your life in any number of different ways. The preacher insists there's a kind of suffering that comes from both having wealth Right, in the first place, so having wealth, but also a kind of suffering that comes from never being satisfied with the wealth you have, which is a slightly different but related problem. And this is what I'm calling the curse of wealth, and it manifests itself in several ways. I want to point out three from our passage. First is a fractured relationship with people, a fractured relationship with people. Right, an ungodly attitude toward or reception of wealth is going to inevitably, inevitably lead to a fractured relationship with people. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, again, the man in verse 8 is all alone. He's all alone. And all he can do is try to find satisfaction in his riches, in his wealth, in his money. And it doesn't work. He, he dies alone. And this is vapor. This is vanity. And then you, you hop into verse 9, and we're basically told pretty simply, we need friendships. You need friendships. If your work, if your work, your occupation, whatever it is that occupies your time, if that thing is crowding out your relationships with other people, you're missing out, the preacher says, of one of life's greatest rewards. He identifies friendship as a, a reward. He says two are better than one in verse 10. Right? A friend picks you up when you fall. You're alone. you got to get up by yourself. If you got a friend there, he's going to pick you up. In Proverbs 18, 24, we learn there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is the biblical uh, commendation of friendship. Now, lying together in verse 13 is not about marriage, right? It's, a, it's, it's to bring to mind someone on a long journey in the ancient Near East, in the cold of night, and the difference between life and death is quite literally having another body with warmth that's going to help keep you alive, right? Two can be the difference between life and death. Verse 14 drives that point home. When you're attacked, it's good to have a friend at your side, right? So this is not one of the most difficult paragraphs in the Bible to understand. We all know about Ebenezer Scrooge. He put pounds before people. 
Well, what about you? Is your commitment to your work, to your hobbies, to your leisure, is it keeping you from developing, investing in good, lasting friendships? Now, look at verse 13. That paragraph there beginning in verse 13, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to understand how that paragraph fits. Uh, the preacher starts by talking about this contrast between a, a poor and a wise youth and an old and a foolish king. And apparently this king started off poor as well, but that experience did not keep this king from eventually becoming foolish. Now, verses 15 and 16, if you look there, they imply that this youth eventually somehow takes the king's place. We don't know how, but that's what appears to happen. Only, and unfortunately, this once poor and wise youth becomes foolish in his old age too. He's leading a great kingdom, verse 16, but the people don't want to follow him. They will not rejoice in him. Right? And if you're a leader, you want your people to rejoice in you, but they won't do it. So what's the problem? I think the answer is in verse 13. Notice how the preacher described that first foolish king. He no longer knew how to take advice. Well, that seems directly tied into the previous paragraph. He became too independent. He became too isolated. And he was, he was alone. And, and his isolation, his unwillingness to receive accountability, to receive counsel, really worked against him, so now he's identified as foolish, but in more uh, widespread ways, it works against the, the well-being of the entire kingdom, where you've got an entire group of people who don't really want to rejoice in or follow this king. So friendship matters. Relationships matter, right? We need to remember, verse 12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I don't think this is about a husband and a wife and God, Though I certainly think that's true, and if you had it at your wedding, that's fine. It's true. But, but this is about our need for community. It's about our need for brothers and sisters, for the, for the church. So like a rope, right, like a rope, our church is bound together. We are wrapped up together. We've been bound by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been woven together by the Holy Spirit. And so that we are that threefold or 400-fold cord. What did Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Right? According to God's plan, we need one another. And, and our union, right, 61 years into the existence of this church, we need to be very clear, our union is not defined by our economics, and it's not defined by our ethnicity. It's not defined by our political party. It's not defined by our tastes, our, our preferences in, in music. Our differences are real. All the differences that I just mentioned are real, and they will test the strength of the rope that is Mount Vernon. Undeniably, it will be tested and pulled and strained. But our unity is not found in those factors, but it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ such that when the rope is pulled and tugged, it will not fray because it's been created by the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we absolutely must keep central the gospel of Jesus Christ in our preaching in our Sunday school classes, in our covenant group meetings, in our one-to-one -one conversations. There are many churches that started 61 years ago that have lost the gospel. We don't want to fall into that category. We want to keep diving into the word, reminding ourselves of the gospel that we might grow in grace and godliness and increasingly enjoy the fruit of recognizing that the gospel is more attractive than any of the other interests that we may or may not share. So, the preacher says, 
in the midst of a world that is enraptured by wealth and success and honor and that is never satisfied in riches, the preacher says you need community. You need friendship. You're not supposed to live the Christian life alone. Maybe you're busy with work. Maybe you're busy with family. Maybe you're busy with life. And the Bible just says, hey, be careful. If you let your pursuit of wealth, and I'm using wealth very broadly here, right? Not merely maybe a 401k. But if your pursuit of, of wealth and all the goods and all the possessions and all the, the honor that comes with that, don't let that pursuit keep you from relationships. Because if you do, you're in danger. Two are better than one. Right? So one curse of wealth is a fractured relationship with people. Now, second, a fractured relationship with God. Right? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now look at verse 1 there. God, at the heart of the Old Testament, worship is the house of God. This is where God, that's the temple. This is where God made himself known. This is where the people came to uh, to confess their sin. It's where they came to offer sacrifices. It's where they came to recommit themselves to the Lord. It's where they came to hear his word. Right? All that happened at the house of God. But what happens, what happens when the people grow cold to the Lord? What happens when they're distracted by the things of everyday life? It happens in every century. Like distractions were not invented alongside of the internet. You know, there was a day when books were distracting. You know, son, why are you always got your nose in a book? You know, it was a distraction from conversation, from engagement. Distractions are as old as the fall. So let's imagine what it would have been like to be a herdsman around the time of the temple. How might he get distracted? Right? One morning he wakes up and he goes to check on the bulls which are in the bullpen. And he goes and he wakes up and he finds out that the gate to the bullpen needs to be repaired. It's a broken gate. He's got to get on it. And then he starts looking. He's, he's, he's fiddling with the, with the gate. And he says, I would really like some more bulls. You know, this, this bullpen protected by this gate is just too small. I want more bulls. And so he starts looking for ways to acquire more land because B.J. King has told me that if you want more bulls, you need more land. You can't just add more bulls. So he starts looking for more land. But he gets some more land, but now he's got to build a bigger barn because there's just more work to do with the more bulls. And, and he, with a bigger barn, he needs some more hands to help. So he's got to hire some more staff. And then, well, they need to eat. And so he's got a little, he needs to get a little bit more farmland as well. And so it started as a guy just trying to fix a gate has snowballed in such a way that it seems like this man's eyes are never satisfied with his riches. His mind is always on the next deal, the next important project, I guess the next bull. And he's never still enough to just meditate on how good God has been to him and to his people. And so what for him was once maybe a hot white relationship with the Lord has cooled down. It's, he's now distracted by the world. And so his walk with the Lord is now casual. It's now ritualistic. It's now transactional. He still goes to the house of God. He makes the sacrifices, but his heart really isn't in it. And he hardly knows his heart isn't even in it because he's so distracted. 
So he's offering up the sacrifices, but he never gives much thought to the one receiving the sacrifices that he's offering. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes says he's become a fool. So brothers and sisters, what we see in verses 1 through 7 is as relevant today as ever. Right? Like that herdsman, we can go through our private and our corporate worship without thinking about what the words were saying, what the words were singing actually mean. Some of us may get to the point where we spend more time talking about God than actually talking to God in prayer. We may even make vows. There's a whole paragraph here on vows. We may, be, we may even make vows or promises that honestly we don't even really intend to fulfill. Like, God, I will spend more time with you next week. Brother, I will pray for you. But with each passing week and each passing month, our words become less and less meaningful. We go throughout the week with only a detached interest in God. And so forget about the herdsmen. Just think about us. For us, what can begin, what may have begun as a white-hot relationship with the Lord has cooled the way lava cools when it's exposed to the air. It hardens when it reaches the surface because it's no longer warmed by the burning fires under the earth. And so our heart is no longer warmed by the heart of God's word, the heat of God's word and God's spirit. So brothers and sisters, I know you don't want a relationship with God like that. No wife wakes up in the morning and says, I hope my love for my husband cools off today. I hope not. No Christian wakes up in the morning and says, I hope I drift away from God today. But it happens. And what can you do to keep that from happening to you? Well, look at verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Guard your steps. Now, we don't go to the house of God. Friends, this is not the house of God. Don't let the steeple fool you. This is a building. Like, praise God for buildings when it rains. Right? This is not the house of God. But, but we can go to God. We can approach God in Christ through his word. And so we need to do that while we're guarding our steps. Right? While we're taking every thought captive. So we need to approach God just like they approached God. We need to approach God as well. And we need to do it boldly. Boldly remember that if you're a Christian... You approach God through the finished work of Christ. Every day you get to wake up and go to the Lord through the blood of Christ. There is no sacrifice left for you to make. Kevin was, was talking about this, about the grace that fuels our obedience. The grace that fuels our, our, our disciplines. Right? It's God's grace that does that. Approach him boldly. There's no sacrifice left for for you to make, Christ made it. Acknowledge the sacrifice of Christ. Go boldly to God. Approach God warmly. Warmly. Right? Remember his love for you. Remember all that Christ has done for you. Approach God like a child running to his father, knowing his father is not going to turn him away. And that means you can approach him joyfully, right? Convinced that he won't forsake you, that he won't toss you aside, that he'll never forget you. Think about Zephaniah where we were a number of months ago. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God rejoices over you in gladness and exults over you with loud singing. Right? Because God rejoices over you, you can rejoice in him. That's how you guard your steps. As you approach the Lord boldly and warmly and joyfully. And not only are you to guard your steps, but you're to listen. Do you see that in verse 1? To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Where did that herdsman fall short? He stopped listening. Right? Your communion with God will always be cool if your knowledge of his word is shallow. 
And, I, and by knowledge, I don't simply mean facts and figures about God. I'm talking about walking with him, about knowing him, about following him, about listening to him with a heart that wants to obey. Have you ever um, <clears throat> tried talking to someone who's on their smartphone? Anyone on their smartphone? Uh, you know, you're talking, they're typing, right? You're, you're talking, they're like this. They're not engaged. Uh, they're not following your train of thought. I know because I've been on both ends. They're tolerating you, but they are not listening to you. Brothers and sisters, when listening to God, put your phone down. Really listen to him. He is a fountain of wisdom that never runs dry. He is a feast that never grows cold. Listen to him. Too often we grow cold. We're too busy pursuing wealth through our work. We're so busy with life we get lost in our dreams. I think that's what dreams is mentioned a couple of times in that passage. We get lost in our dreams. We get lost in our fantasies. We get lost in our many words. And, and, and we forget God. And so verse 7 says, when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And not fear in the sense of be terrorized by, but fear in the sense of be in awe of. What a God. What a maker. What a redeemer. What a savior. Guard your steps as you draw near his house. Listen to him. For if you don't, your relationship with God will suffer. So the curse of wealth, that distraction, can lead you to a fractured relationship with people, a fractured relationship with God. Now, this is really interesting. It can also lead to a fractured relationship with wealth, with wealth itself. What's interesting about this point is it assumes that you can have a whole or a good relationship with wealth, with stuff, your vocation, right? your possessions, your home, your time. But before you can have a healthy relationship with what you own, with your wealth, you need to understand how easily fractured, how easily fractured or broken or warped or twisted our relationship to our stuff can become. Right? Look at Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hands. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger." All right, now verse 10 is clearly the key there, right? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And that sounds an awful lot like Jesus who taught that what we treasure or value most is going to be our first love. And that's why Jesus said we cannot love God and money. Because the moment you love money with that kind of uh, hot, strong, passionate love, you, if you will, not God off the table of your heart. You can't have two masters. Right? Benedict Arnold could fight for the British Army. He could fight for the American Army. He couldn't fight for both. The fundamental problem that Jesus and the preacher address here is not the presence of wealth in your life, but the love of wealth in your life. Now, having said that, to be faithful to the text, we need to recognize that the mere presence of wealth in your life is dangerous. Right? Look at verse 11. The preacher says, more wealth means more problems. Right? This, is, this is like the herdsman. 
right? When goods increase, they increase who eat them, right? Uh, the, 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 the more you have, uh, the more bills you have, right? With more responsibility becomes more worries. Uh, God may grow your business, but that will also grow your problems. Verse 12, as a result of this increase, the rich have a harder time sleeping. Right? King Dionysius, I mentioned earlier, lived with the fear he'd be assassinated. Right? There's, there's no way to rest. He says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Right? The, the accumulation of wealth and responsibility brings with it a preoccupation with the things of this world that make it very difficult to rest. That's the basic wisdom being presented to us here. Verse 13, riches often lead the owner to his hurt. Again, maybe that's why the rich can't sleep. There's always the potential for something serious going wrong. So we hear of lottery winners whose lives are a thousand times worse after winning the lottery than before. You think, well, if that were me, I would handle it just fine. I don't know. That's not the point. The, the issue here is just there's just so much evidence that a windfall of wealth doesn't actually increase happiness. You know, I've seen personally so many families that have uh, been subject to frustration because of the presence of wealth within those families. Verse 15, the preacher ends with the simple reminder, you cannot take it with you. Death is the universal equalizer. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Now that sounds a lot like Job. Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. And so we appropriately saying today, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Passages like that are supposed to make wealth seem less attractive to you, less compelling, less desirous. Right? The, the mere presence of wealth in your life is dangerous. Now, some of you are called to that danger, and you have special responsibility to bear. But all of us should be slow to think that the accumulation of wealth and responsibility in our lives is necessarily a good thing. That's, that's the impression you get from those passages. Now, now take a look at chapter 6. The preacher makes this fascinating observation. After describing the many dangers of wealth, maybe you think it would be better to sell everything you have and buy one of those tiny houses, right, HGTV? Sell everything and buy a tiny house. Maybe not. Though wealth can harm you, it's actually evil to have wealth and not enjoy it. Ecclesiastes 6.1. Some of you are going, I've been waiting for this verse my entire life. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 6.1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. So, a man who has everything except the ability to enjoy what he has. This, the preacher says, is evil under the sun. Look at verse 3. Picture a man or a woman with many, many kids in quite a long life. But this person is still not satisfied with life's good things. The preacher, in fact, says it would be better if he had never been born. The failure to be content with however little or how much you have is one of life's greatest sins. Now, I grew up in the 
Growing up, I was thinking middle class suburb of Portland. Sometimes I think maybe it was, you know, I visited a few years ago. It looked a little more lower class now. Uh, I can't explain that. But I was never surrounded by great wealth as a kid. After a brief time in D.C., my wife and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. We attended the Blue Collar Church of Louisville. I don't think it's that way now, but when we were there, and what it had been was the Blue Collar Church of the city. The doctors and the lawyers, they were in the church up the street, and this was the Blue Collar Church of, of the city. We're not surrounded by great wealth in, in Louisville. Moving to Sandy Springs was new to, to us, new to me. Uh, and I remember talking about this with the former pastor who had been the interim pastor of Mount Vernon uh, when, uh, right before I arrived, Jim Wood, uh, who had pastored here from, I think, 1985 to 1991, and had experienced the, the community here in northern Atlanta, metro Atlanta, Sandy Springs. He made an excellent point as we were talking about this. He said, you know, Aaron, the poor can be just as greedy as the rich. And having pastored here for six years, he was quite aware of Sandy Springs, of the wealth, but he was even better aware of the human heart. And, and sin plays no favorites. It will consume and attack whomever it can. And it will attack the poor as quickly as it will attack the rich. So the failure to be content with however little the poor or however much the rich, the failure to be content with however little or much you have is one of life's greatest sins. Now, why is this true? Because the fundamental question is never, what's the size of my bank account? The fundamental question is, what's the size of my stomach? What's the size of my appetite? Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now, that's not just a description. That's a rebuke. Now, you put all these chapters together, and it's hard to miss the, the curse of wealth. There is a kind of suffering that comes from having wealth and from never being satisfied, never being content with the wealth you have. And if your appetite for the world is bloated, it's going to keep you from having supportive friendships, a humble, healthy relationship with God, and even a, a, a right, righteous relationship with the wealth that God has seen fit to give you. Right? That is the curse of wealth. And if we're not aware of that, we're not prepared at all to appreciate the second point, which is the blessings of wealth. The blessing of wealth. Now in Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20, we get a clue about how to view our wealth. We learn that wealth, in light of everything I've just said, wealth is a blessing to be received from God. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Is there a godly way to enjoy your wealth? The answer is yes, and I want to explain that answer with five relatively short points, followed by a cupcake. First, your wealth and possessions are gifts from God. Your wealth and possessions are gifts from God. The preacher is clear in verse 19 that it is God who gives us our wealth and possessions. God is the giver. He is generous. Now, God's generosity is clearest when it is costliest, which is why when we think about God's generosity, we typically and appropriately think of Romans 8.32 and the father who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. 
But though God is uniquely generous to his children through Christ, he is still to be understood as being the giver of all good gifts. Our children, our homes, our clothes, our food, these are gifts from God. We don't deserve any of these gifts. So the Bible cannot easily be read by atheists because we affirm God is real, powerful, sovereign, and in charge of the distribution of his wealth. Now, God does not distribute this wealth, these gifts, equally. No, some get more, others get less. And it's always been that way. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. But I know that in a fallen world, we do not have the same amount. There are challenges to having more, and there are challenges to having less. Now, please note what I'm not saying. I am not saying we, as individual Christians, or as a church, should ignore modern-day discrepancies in wealth. I'm not saying the poverty that results from injustice is a good thing because somehow God is sovereign over it. In fact, Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9, right there the preacher points out like the prophets of the Old Testament in a lamenting sort of way the reality that very often the poor are poor because of the inevitable oppression of the rich. And that should make us angry with a righteous kind of indignation. And that should cause us to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I don't live in a fair world. This is not fair. It's not right. The way so often the rich exploit the poor. Right? That's in our text as well. I'm simply saying that to the extent that you have wealth, to the extent that you have possessions, to the extent that you have honor, I'm simply saying that you shouldn't think of that stuff as something you are entitled to or something that you deserve. They are gifts from God, your maker. You don't deserve that cupcake. You don't. It's a gift from God. Wealth and possessions are gifts from God. Number two, it is good and fitting to enjoy these gifts. Good and fitting. I see this in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. I need to find enjoyment in the producing and I need to find enjoyment in the production. Enjoy my work. Enjoy the fruit of my labor. It's appropriate to enjoy the gifts you have from God who gave you the strength to labor in the first place. Now, it is possible to go through life with a certain low-grade guilt with what you have because you don't give enough, you don't pray enough, you don't serve enough, and that equals low-grade guilt. Now, maybe you are, in fact, guilty. Brothers and sisters, we are to be good stewards of what we've been given, generous because God is generous. That's what we've been thinking about so much of 2020. But there is a time for every matter under heaven. And that includes a time to enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. The New Testament is filled with similar exhortations. I'm not even going to give you all of them. But in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, we read, Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I love the connection between God being the giver. Right? Nothing is to be rejected. Rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Lord, thank, if, you can, if you can rightly and righteously say, pray, God, thank you for giving this to me. Thank you. I received this with thanksgiving. But you can enjoy it, right? If you can't say that about whatever you're about to eat or drink or watch or enjoy, if you can't thank God for it, like, Lord, I thank you for this movie. I thank you for this song. I thank you for this beverage. If you can't say that, well, it's not to be received with thanksgiving, is it? But if you can, it's to be enjoyed. In Romans 14, 6, we're told we can eat in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord. 
Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our eating and our drinking, our enjoying of God's gifts is good and fitting. It's good and fitting. When we remember he is the source of these gifts, God is the giver. Okay? No frowns when you eat the cupcake. Enjoy it. Third, the brevity of life should shape our appetite. The brevity of life should shape our appetite. In Ecclesiastes 5.18, the preacher reiterates, our life under the sun is made up of just the few days. Just the few days. Life is a vapor. Life is a mist. It will pass before we know it. You cannot enjoy the wealth that God has given you until you realize how short your life is. If you live as if your life will never end, if you live as if your life will never end, you will be more likely to maximize work and acquisition and you will never be satisfied. But if you live recognizing that this world is not your home, then you'll be more likely to maximize the enjoyment of it and the generosity with it. So I want you to picture two dads at the beach. Right, picture two dads at the beach, both building a sandcastle with their kids, of course, right by the water. Now, the one dad thinks that this sandcastle that he's building is going to last forever. He is convinced that this sandcastle will never be destroyed. He is as uptight as the day is long. He's getting mad, like, you're building it the wrong way. You know, because he's just dreaming about generations later, people admiring his sandcastle. So he can't enjoy a second with his children. And then imagine what he's like when he sees the water lapping against the sandcastle. Now he's just furious. He can't enjoy a second of the day. But the other dad, just down the beach, he knows that this sandcastle is only going to last for a few hours, maybe. Who cares if it's the worst looking sandcastle on the shore? Enjoy the few hours you've got with your kids. Have fun. Decorate it with seashells. You know, try to dig a moat. Enjoy it. He can enjoy it because he recognizes that it's not going to last forever. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes is so amazingly wise by the power of the Holy Spirit that he recognizes that though life is a vapor, though it is super duper short, in a strange way that allows you to enjoy it because you recognize you recognize that that sandcastle doesn't have to be the world to you. It can just be a sandcastle that's going to last for a couple hours and then float away. The brevity of life should shape our appetite. Number four, the power to enjoy goods cannot be separated from the gospel. The power to enjoy goods cannot be separated from the gospel. Look at verse 19. It's not just our wealth and possessions that God has given us. He's also given us the power to enjoy them. The power to enjoy is a supernatural gift from God. Right? I take this to mean that I cannot have a healthy, good, godly relationship with my wealth until God first works in my heart. God has to do something inside of me before I can enjoy what is outside of me. And now, instead of trying to really explain this more, let me just show you what it looks like for God to work in a person's heart. Matthew 13, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is shorthand for everything Jesus did, his life, his death, his resurrection. The kingdom of heaven is, is shorthand for everything that Jesus did to secure our salvation, the gospel. Right? It begins with that bad news that we are born rebels against God and for our rebellion deserve everlasting death and punishment. But God in his love sent Jesus Christ to do what you and I could never do, to live perfectly under the sun, to die the death that we deserve to die, 
to, to prove his, his power over death through his own resurrection. And now through repentance and faith, we can share in Christ's life by dying to our own sin and living for him forever and ever. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Now, what's it like when someone really understands this, right? When someone guards his steps as he approaches the house of God, what's it look like for someone to really understand in his bones that gospel that you probably know with your mind so well? Well, it's like a man who saw the most precious treasure on the planet hidden in a field. And he came across it. And in his joy, he goes back and he grabs everything he's ever accumulated, everything that has any value to him. He bundles it all up and he sells it all on eBay. That is his entire fortune. And he, 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 he pays his entire fortune just so he can buy that field. So that which is most precious to him can become his. So in other words, his heart valued that treasure so much that everything he sold on eBay seemed, because it was, dispensable. And when the gospel means more to you than anything else, everything else in your life, however important, gets shoved into the back seat of your life. It's not that they're unimportant. They're just no longer all important. And getting to that point in your life where you can actually say that about your stuff, your wealth, is so hard that there's no way you can do it out absent the intervention of God. And that's what the preacher is saying. It takes the power of God to put your wealth in the back seat. So you can, for the first time in your life, actually enjoy it. This is what God does to the heart of his children. He places in us a love for Christ that outshines all other loves. When Christ is more valuable to us than anyone or anything, we're now finally free to enjoy everything. Because we're not asking these things to save us. We're not asking the sandcastle to last forever. We're simply free to enjoy them as good gifts from God. But this is only possible if God changes your heart by the power of the gospel. In all honesty, the cupcake will taste sweeter if the Holy Spirit is in you. Fifth, in Christ, you are now free to be content no matter how much or how little you have. Listen again to the passage, the verse that was read by Amy a few moments ago. Philippians 4.11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So there it is right there at the end of Philippians. In Christ, you can receive wealth as a blessing. You can receive plenty and abundance as gifts from God. So being content isn't merely being impressed with God when you don't have much. Being content isn't merely being impressed with God when you don't have much. It's being unimpressed with much because you have God. And that's why I said at the beginning that wealth can only be truly enjoyed when Christ is singularly prized. Your life as a Christian should not look like Damocles waiting for the sword to fall. You are free to sing and rejoice in plenty and in hunger, in abundance and in need. Your joy is not tied to your circumstances but to Christ's death and resurrection. So Christian, your sins have been atoned for. Your goods and possessions, because they're not the most important thing in your life, you're now free to enjoy them. And this takes faith. What I want you to hear is this takes faith. The, the power to enjoy is not going to come to you absent faith in Jesus Christ, in who he is, in what he did. 
Jeremiah Burroughs in his great book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, said, I can in all states cast my care upon God, cast my burden upon God. I can commit my way to God in peace. Faith can do this. Brothers and sisters, faith can do this. Faith that your sin, not in part but in whole, has been nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. It is well, it is well with your soul. Well in poverty and well in riches. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning again so thankful for who Christ is and for what he's done. So aware that most of us are living lives that are wealthy by the standards of the vast majority of this world and aware that our wealth is a gift from you and in desperate need of knowing both how to steward that wealth, how to enjoy that wealth, how not to rely on that wealth, and we can only do it through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here, we pray for anyone here who may never have really submitted to Christ, never repented and believed this good news that I've been talking about. Father, we pray that this very moment he or she would submit his life to Christ. We pray that she would stop living for herself and start living for the king of the universe. We pray for all of us that we would grow in contentment, thankful for who Christ is and what he's done. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.